food and nutrition are the top cause of poor health in this country and on the planet. So I think food and nutrition were front and center top of the picture for health before COVID. And with COVID, COVID's really laid bare the kind of fractured food system and unhealthy food system that we have even more so. And so we really need to fix this. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Poor diet is the leading cause of mortality in the United States, actually causing more than half a million deaths per year. Just 10 dietary factors are estimated to cause nearly 1,000 deaths every day from things like heart disease, stroke, and diabetes alone. These conditions are dizzying expensive. Cardiovascular disease costs over $350 billion a year in healthcare spending and lost productivity. Diabetes costs over $300 billion annually. The total economic cost of obesity is estimated at $1.7 trillion per year, or 9% of gross domestic product. All that is from an op-ed in the New York Times about a year ago by Dr. Dariush Mozafarian. He says... Food is the number one cause of poor health in America, with hundreds of billions of dollars spent each year on preventable diet-related illnesses. Isn't it kind of crazy, kind of amazing? I mean, we're living with something bigger and worse than COVID, and hardly anyone is worried about it. Ironically, we're all waiting for the vaccine trials to be completed so we can get back to normal, and COVID will be a thing of the past. But in fact, the solution to another epidemic, bad nutrition, is under our very noses right now. But most people prefer not to pay attention. That's what I learned from Darius Mosafarian, and that's what you're going to learn too from this episode of the SIDCast. Darius Mosafarian's a cardiologist. He's a tenured and chaired professor at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. He's a professor of medicine at Tufts Medical School as well. He is one of the world's top nutrition scientists and uh, has authored over 400 scientific publications on dietary priorities around obesity, around diabetes, diabetes, around cardiovascular diseases. And he adopts an evidence-based policy approach to how to address these scourges that we have with us. He's an advisor to the U.S. and Canadian governments, the American Heart Association, World Health Organization, the United Nations, and his work has appeared, well, everywhere, not just in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, NPR, Time Magazine, Washington Post, and many other places. He's educated at Stanford, the University of Washington, and Harvard. He's, again, as I say, a cardiologist by training and probably one of the most knowledgeable, thoughtful, and articulate people I've ever met on the subject that we all care about, how to live longer and how to live well. And he has done the research and is a national and global spokesman on exactly this point. I've been paying attention to nutrition, trying to eat well for years. The dirty little secret, actually it's a wonderful little secret, is that you don't have to be close to perfect to reap these huge benefits. I'm not giving up chocolate or the occasional ice cream or even the more occasional Humpty Dumpty barbecue potato chips, an addiction I've had since I was a kid. And now it turns out I can easily manage with the simplest of solutions. I just don't bring the stuff in the house. But I'll have a slice of chocolate cake or two on occasion. I'm partial to lose Hanover fudge, actually. But eating well is not about giving up everything. 
the payoff is, it's incredible. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to eat well, if I'm going to eat better, you know what I want to know? I want to know the facts. I want to know that it's going to make a difference. I want to know that if I'm going to do this, it's going to pay off. And Dr. Mozafarian lays it all out for us in this podcast. Imagine if someone told you that the single best thing you can do to be healthier longer is to eat better. I can tell you I'm a certified foodie, but it's not that hard to do. And it could be delicious at the same time. It's actually a lot of fun. It sounds crazy to people that can't picture this, but the opportunity to eat really, really well and really, really healthy is not that complicated. And that's why I really wanted Darius to be a guest on my podcast, on the Sidcast. His message is just too important to ignore. This will be a great conversation with Dr. Darius Mosafarian. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with Dariush Mosafarian, who is the dean at Tufts in the School of Nutrition and actually a national and global expert on one of the topics we've talked about in various venues in the SIDCast in the past, uh, food, in particular, the science of food and what's good for you and what's not good for you, and lots of related issues around health. So first of all, let me just uh, welcome you to the SIDCast. Uh, thank you, Sid. No, nice to be on. So you're actually a cardiologist. Where did this intense interest in nutrition and food come from? Not surprisingly, that's actually a question I get often. And my response, which is only partially in jest, is how come every cardiologist is completely invested and passionate about nutrition? Poor eating is the number one cause of poor health on the planet. It's the number one cause of poor health in our country. It's been so for many years, exceeding even tobacco smoking or physical inactivity or accidents or many other major causes of death and disability. So if you care about health, you have to care about food and nutrition. And personally, when I was in my training as a medical student, and then as an internal medicine resident, and then as a cardiology fellow, throughout my training, I could tell I just had a feeling that it was you know, the food was a big deal for my patients. I didn't have a ton of science on that at the time, but it was just very obvious to me. And yet we weren't learning anything about it in our training, which was sort of shocking that such a big factor in our patient's health was really missing from healthcare. So that was the first big epiphany. And then the second one was when I started to review the science myself. This was in the late 90s. I started reading as much as I could about nutrition, so at least I could educate myself. And I found that even then, 20, 25 years ago, the science didn't support a low-fat diet, which was the almost entirety of recommendations for preventing heart disease was low-fat, low-saturated fat diet. And the science didn't support it. And so that was the second big epiphany for me that the science even then wasn't getting translated into policy and in, into the public's eye. And so my career goal is to have a positive impact on people's lives and to have positive impact on health. And so I thought this is a really important area, both to better understand the science and to get it integrated into policy and healthcare effectively. Right. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of the science around low fat and other aspects of health, but you said something really, really interesting, which is, you know, the science didn't support the dominant recommendation to follow a low fat diet. And my question is why from a psychological or public health or behavioral economics perspective, why would that be, or a political perspective? Why would that recommendation that's the dominant recommendation not be supported by the science? Yeah, well, it's no longer the dominant recommendation, although most people don't realize that. So in 2015, the dietary guidelines officially dropped any limit on fat, but most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. But I wondered that question myself and with some other collaborators and colleagues, we've looked at the history and we published on this in the British Medical Journal a couple of years ago. And where we are today in nutrition science and in kind of our recommendations and in the whole food system actually makes 
perfect sense if you just go back and look at the history of the last hundred years. If you don't know the history, you don't understand why uh, we are where we are today. And so I won't go into it into exhaustive detail, but very briefly, modern nutrition science is very, very young. And I would date the birth of it to the 1930s when Mm -hmm. the first vitamins ever were isolated and synthesized. So that's really modern history, right? This wasn't the 1700s or the 1800s. The 1930s were the first vitamins were isolated and synthesized. And so for the first time ever, scientists were able to prove that there were compounds in food that could prevent or cure diseases. And in this case, it was nutrient deficiency diseases, things like vitamin C deficiency causing scurvy or uh, niacin deficiency causing uh, pellagra or vitamin A deficiency causing night blindness and vitamin D deficiency causing rickets and so forth. And these deficiency diseases were actually very common in the United States in early 1900s and were common around the world. And so the science over the next 20, 30 years really focused on understanding single nutrients and deficiency diseases. Now, the accident of history is at the same time, what was happening was the Great Depression and World War II. And so that led to huge concerns about food shortages and not getting enough nutrients into the food supply. And so all of US policy around World War II was focused on let's get the right nutrients to the population. And the first dietary guidelines in 1950 also focused on that. Now, why am I talking about nutrient deficiency diseases like scurvy and rickets and these other conditions? Well, those conditions are very much single nutrient diseases where a reductionist approach to nutrition, where you break down food and you figure out the right exact single nutrient that's going to cause or cure the disease, that approach works very, very well for a disease like scurvy, right? There's one nutrient, vitamin C. If you have enough, you don't get scurvy. If you don't have enough, you get scurvy. Very straightforward. So the first really 40, 50 years of modern nutrition science and policy from 1930 all the way really to 1980 was entirely focused on these nutrient deficiencies, which were very, very common. And at the same time, there was huge concern about a growing population. There were books like The Population Explosion and all these dire predictions of hundreds of millions of people starving. And so that led to the Green Revolution. We really have to expand food production. Let's get as many calories produced as possible. And so there was a very conscious effort to add incredible technology to our agricultural system, all focused on a handful of inexpensive commodity crops, things like wheat and rice and corn and Mm -hmm. soy. And so the whole focus of our science, our policy, our agricultural production system was let's get as many cheap, shelf-stable, starchy calories into the population and let's fortify them with the right vitamins to have a healthy population. If we have calories and we have vitamins, we're healthy. And so think of what the grocery store looks like now, you know, Sid, if you walk down the grocery store, down the cereal aisle or down the bread aisle or down the cracker aisle, right? That's a very conscious effort to create foods that are, again, cheap, shelf-stable, lots of starch, lots of vitamins. And that was very successful. So I don't want to minimize the positive aspects of that effort. You know, we dramatically reduced caloric hunger in the world, dramatically reduced micronutrient deficiencies in the world. But, and here's the big but, right around 1980, late 1970s, 1980s was the first time seriously scientists started saying, well, you know, maybe nutrition is also really important for diabetes and for heart disease and for cancers and for now even more recently for gut health and brain health. That's really modern history, right? We're talking 40 years ago, this was sort of really an issue. And so the mistake that was made, the unconscious mistake that was made was, well, 
we figured out the nutrient that causes pure scurvy. We figured out the nutrient that we need to worry about for rickets. What's the nutrient we need to figure out for obesity or heart disease, right? And so it was a very simplistic reductionist approach, which works well for these deficiency diseases, works terribly for complex chronic diseases like obesity and diabetes and heart disease and cancers and gut health and everything else. But scientists didn't know that at the time. And so this low fat focus, this low saturated fat focus was just a natural extension of this reductionist approach that had worked so well. And scientists said, well, let's just use it again. But it's not correct. And so very simplistic early science, I shouldn't say simplistic, that's derogatory, but the best science that was available, we'd look back now and say, you know, the methods weren't that strong. The science that they had in the 1970s suggested that, yeah, fat and saturated fat caused heart disease and caused obesity and other diseases. And so what's happened over the last 40 years is that single nutrient reductionist paradigm has been blown up and doesn't work for complex chronic diseases. And now we're shifting to really understanding the complexity, the molecular complexity, the physiologic complexity, the biologic complexity of food. Food is information. Food is complex. Food is much more than calories and starch and vitamins, and it interacts with our bodies in really complicated ways. And that's what we're starting to learn. And so, and this is where we are today in this funny interim transition period between this old reductionist science, which still dominates and predominates in some ways, and the new science of complexity. All right. With that, thank you for taking us through a, a little bit of that history. It actually makes a lot of sense how we ended up there. It was people trying to do the best job they could, smart people doing the best job they could, not understanding a really fundamental shift in thinking was required. Now, you mentioned a lot of studies. Like a lot of people, I've been frustrated by looking at what's in the press, and I'm not talking about National Choir, but New York Times and Wall Street Journal. And sometimes there's an article that says, you know, this is good for you, this food is good for you, this food is not so good for you. And the question of the quality of research on nutrition and food, how would you characterize that? And I know you're doing a lot to try to greatly improve and increase the scope of that research, but it just seems to be different things, like, like fat is a very good example and carbs is a good example. One time we're told one thing and then a few years later it's something else and people don't know what to do. And that's only the people that are paying attention in the first place. Is this research going through double blind studies with control groups? Is it, I don't know if we were as sophisticated, but state of the art as we like to think pharma molecules or the vaccines that we're talking about now with COVID or who knows what else? Well, you know, first, you're absolutely right that people are really confused and they're bombarded by all kinds of conflicting messages from the media and book authors and bloggers and influencers and celebrities and scientists. Scientists don't agree on every point as well. And so that's led to some prominent scientists who aren't in nutrition, some prominent scientists outside nutrition to actually criticize the field and say the field is weak and we really don't know anything and we should actually ditch the guidelines. Even there have been scientists who said things like that. So this is also something that as a cardiologist, I've thought about and looked at and I've compared the science in nutrition and the controversies to other fields, other fields like cardiology or even others. I was very interested in physics in college and I'm still sort of a physics nut. And so thinking about things that have changed in physics or genetics or other fields. And my conclusion, not everybody may agree with me, my conclusion is that nutrition science doesn't change or evolve any more or any less than any other science. Um, every science changes and evolves pretty rapidly and old paradigms which people thought were set in stone get discarded and people move on to new science. Think about physics. 
Newtonian you know, mechanics to Einstein's theories of special and general relativity, which totally don't fit with quantum mechanics, the discovery of dark matter and dark energy, which nobody had any idea existed, right? Completely upending old paradigms. More closer to home, cardiology, my field, there's major, major controversy over just the most basic fundamental things that have been studied in dozens of trials with hundreds of millions of dollars. Should statin drugs be used for primary prevention? There's genuine controversy about that. What about aspirin for primary prevention of heart attacks? Who should get an angioplasty? There's all sorts of controversy for angioplasty. And those are some of the best studied sciences in cardiology. If you start getting to which anticoagulant should you use for atrial fibrillation or for risk of stroke or who and when and how should you have aortic valve replacement, right? There's all kinds of Mm -hmm. uncertainties and controversies. So I think that's natural and normal in science that, you know, stuttering and, and shifts moving toward truth and science is always improving. And not only it's natural, it should reassure us, right? You don't go to your doctor and say, give me the best treatment and the best drug from 30 years ago, right? You want to know what the cutting edge is now. This is true for cancer, right? We could go through cancer chemotherapy. But for nutrition, so I really think what's different for nutrition is that it's personal, it's cultural. If I go to a dinner party and talk about let's say I was a rocket scientist and I talked about going to Mars and the best rocket fuel to go to Mars, not everybody at the table is going to say, well, I don't think you should have that rocket fuel. You should use this rocket fuel or that trajectory. But if I talk about nutrition, everyone in the room, regardless of whether they have a scientific background, is going to have an opinion on what's causing the problem. It's the hormones in the food or it's the carbs or it's the fat. Or, you know. So I think it's very personal. And that personal nature of nutrition, we all eat every day, multiple times a day, really creates this intense attachment to the science. And it also means that thousands of people are talking about the science with authority that don't actually have the backgrounds to do it. And so imagine, like I said, whatever scientists can imagine their own field, Imagine if every controversy in your own scientific field were magnified and distorted every day by the media and book authors and bloggers and other folks. So I think it's, Sid, again, this is my own conclusion. I think it's a combination of real shifts in science, genuine shifts in science, which have been quite large. I mean, these aren't minor shifts in science to go from low fat Mm -hmm. being the dominant paradigm 20, 30 years later saying, no, 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 we were wrong, right? It's not low fat. That's a huge shift to acknowledge. And there's real controversies right now, real controversies about, you know, what about dairy foods? What about tropical oils like coconut oil? There's all kinds of real controversies too, but that is magnified 10, a hundred fold Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. all of the noise. And then people pay attention and care about it. And so I think in my mind, I think nutrition science is young and advancing and we're not where we need to go. We're not where we need to be yet. But I don't think it's any different of a science or any weaker of a science or the methods are any weaker than really any other field that I've seen. That is a great discussion of a couple of points I think very few people think about, but it's completely logical. We understand food innately. We understand it. We cook it. We buy it. We make it. We eat it. And so that makes each of us not quite, we're not all going to say we're experts, but we know a lot about it because we're doing it every single day. We're in the lab of the kitchen every day or the restaurant every day, but that's never the case for these other fields. I mean, really interesting. Now, having said all that, though, you've also called for, I think you've said the time has come for a national moonshot on nutrition research. So what are you thinking about and why is this the right time? 
Well, as, as I mentioned, food and nutrition are the top cause of poor health in this country and on the planet. And in a time of the COVID pandemic that's been with us for several months and prior pandemics and future pandemics to come, food and nutrition are also really crucial, whether it's for making sure we don't have food insecure and hungry and malnourished people who are going to be at higher risk, whether it's thinking about specific natural compounds and how they might boost the immune system. Really, crucially for COVID, thinking about how we can improve the metabolic health of the population, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, other diet-related diseases, magnify the risk of poor outcomes by COVID by three or fourfold each. I mean, huge huge increased risk if you have one of these diet-related metabolic conditions with COVID. So I think food and nutrition were front and center top of the picture for health before COVID. And with COVID, COVID's really laid bare the kind of fractured food system and unhealthy food system that we have even more so. And so we really need to fix this. And you know, at the pace we're going, the science is advancing, but I would guess it might take us 50 years to get to where we want to be, understanding food in the microbiome and the microbiome's effects on health food and the immune system and brain health, what exactly, how exactly food and nutrition influence babies in the first thousand days of life, all the thousands of phytochemicals and flavanols that are in things like chocolate and green tea and broccoli and cranberries and other foods. There's thousands of them and we haven't even cataloged all of them and all of their effects. Translational questions like how do we get people to change their behavior? How do we use our investments like in the you know, nutrition assistance programs? How do we get food and nutrition into the healthcare system effectively? There's so many translational science questions we need to ask too. And so we don't have 50 years. We don't have 50 years to wait. Food is crucial for health, for equity, for healthcare spending, for a resilient population against pandemics and more. And so I think if you look at, for example, the National Institutes of Health, this is the country's jewel, one of the world's jewels in research. And it's an, an amazing institution. And yet the National Institutes of Health doesn't have an institute focused on the number one cause of poor health, poor nutrition. And so I think as one example, others have called for a National Institute of Nutrition that should be added to the NIH, not to take away from any of the other institutes and centers, but for Congress to add a new institute, add new funding for that institute. If we had a new institute and spent a billion or two billion a year on nutrition research, we could rapidly advance what we need to know. And to put it in context, a billion or two billion sounds like a lot of money, but the US government spends about 160 billion a year on just direct medical treatment for just type 2 diabetes, which is almost entirely preventable and treatable with good nutrition. And so instead of spending 160 billion a year and growing on type 2 diabetes, the government could spend one or two billion a year on nutrition research and help us be healthier. You know, listening to you talk, I can't help but think that nutrition science really doesn't get a lot of respect. Look at how important it is. Look what you just described. And there's the research from, you know, institutes and schools like your own stand up. There are not a ton of them. And I mean, do you agree with that, that it's just not respected as a field for a variety of reasons? Has there ever been anyone in the shortlist for Nobel prizes or other science prizes? Maybe there has, I don't know, from this field of nutrition. Well, I think certainly I'd have to look, but I think certainly if you look back to the original bench science of vitamin discovery, I'm going to guess there were several Nobel Prizes and I'm embarrassed. I don't know the details, but I'm sure there were for some of that original bench science. I do think that now, I don't know if respect is the right word. On the one hand, nutrition science gets tons of attention. It's always when there's articles about chocolate or coffee or some new study comes out, the public is eating it up, pun intended. And so the public is craving good science. And so on the one hand, nutrition science gets tons of attention. 
But I don't think it gets the financial resources or more importantly, the intellectual resources it needs, right? We need more prominent young scientists from all fields, social science, you know, economic science, behavioral science, bench science, studying this, and we need more funding support. I think the gap between the opportunity, what we can do with the science and what we're investing in it is larger than for any other science I can think of. Let's talk about some of the, as you described the research, it's got a long way to go, but there's also a lot that we know and things that have gone back and forth. And I want to ask you about a few of the kind of hot button topics, things that I've wondered about and just can't quite get get it clear in my head what makes sense and what doesn't. And you probably have to explain what some of these things mean much better than I could in my question, because the first one is the glycemic index, which I came across in a book I read a number of years ago. And it has to do, I don't even want to embarrass myself by describing what it has to do, but I'll let you do that. But it's a, it's a metric that I think when I read about it, it sounded like a metric I should be paying a lot of attention to. It seemed to be really important. Uh, could you say a little bit about what it is and what you think about it as a relevant factor in nutrition science and for individuals? Well, you know, I am empathetic and appreciate your feeling confused or others at all levels of attention span and ability to have time and education, because I'm confused when I look at the science about some of these <laughs> things. And, and this is what I do every day. So, you know, nutrition is really complicated. Glycemic index is a measure basically of how fast a carbohydrate like starch, which is in potatoes and rice and crackers and cereals and breads and other things, or sugars, which are in fruits and added sugars and other things. Those are carbohydrates, starch and sugar. Glycemic index is a measure of how quickly that gets digested and into your bloodstream. You know, another way to think about it is a fast carb or a slow carb. And so a slow carb gets digested very, very slowly. The glucose, or in the case of glycemic index, there's also fructose and sugar, but the glucose, which is what starch is, and it's half of sugar is glucose, how fast that glucose gets into your bloodstream. Does it create a huge spike or does it slowly trickle into your body can use it as it comes in? And the spikes are bad. You don't want spikes in your blood sugar because that's basically like turning yourself into a diabetic after every meal for short periods. And so these spikes in glucose from fast carbs Refined starches and sugars are what defines glycemic index. The bigger question is how do you define a healthy carb? Because to me, I think if I had to identify one major change that I think has related to the global obesity and diabetes pandemic, we truly have a pandemic of obesity and diabetes around the world. There's not a single country that has stable or declining rates of obesity and diabetes in the world. Just think about that. I said every country in the world has increasing obesity and diabetes the last 40 years. It's sort of shocking. I think one big reason for that is the change in how we consume carbohydrates and the extensive refining and processing of carbohydrates and the focus in the previous guidelines on increasing carbohydrates, which were at the base of the original food pyramid, right? Eat breads and crackers and other things. And so glycemic index is one way to measure the quality of a carbohydrate. If you look at a slice of bread or a cracker or a bowl of rice or a cereal or, or an energy bar or a granola bar, right? All these kind of popcorn, all these kind of carbohydrate rich foods, the glycemic index is one way to measure the, the potential health effects of that food. But that's not the only way. And it's not the only thing that's important. So beyond glycemic index, fiber content is important. Beyond fiber content, just the total amount of carb uh, is important. Beyond that, the food structure is important. If there's germ and whole bran that has other minerals and other things in the food, that's important. 
And so there's no simple way to say whether carbohydrate-rich food is good for you or bad for you just by any one metric. And then the other complicated thing about glycemic index is it's not listed on the package. And so even if you did want to pay attention to it, it's not listed on the package. And so what we have studied and published on and others have published on, there's been several papers in different countries, actually. The simplest kind of simple rule to pick a healthy carb is to look at the amount of total carbohydrate to fiber, the carb to fiber ratio. And I can talk more about that if you'd like, kind of explain that. But at a high level, some people are saying now you should avoid all carbs, right? Mm -hmm. Just go to a low carb diet. I, I don't think that's the most healthful diet, although you will rapidly lose weight if you eliminate all carbs. That's well documented. But it's it's a very hard diet to stay on. And I also don't know if it's healthy long term. So for me, I recommend low starch and sugar, but not low carb. So most carb in the US is starch and sugar. So that's most of the carbohydrate. But the exceptions are I do think people should eat fruits and I do think people should eat beans. And I think if you can really get minimally processed whole grains like steel cut mm -hmm. oats or true stone ground whole grain breads with seeds and you eat them with healthy foods, I think small amounts of those are also okay. So avoiding starch and sugar is the most important. And as I said, if you want, I can talk about this kind of simple rule when you're looking at breads or packaged foods. Yeah. Yeah. The fiber point. I, 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 is there a rule of thumb on fiber to carbohydrate for people to pay attention to? Yeah. Well, so, so added sugar is on the nutrition facts panel now. And so you can look at added sugar. The reason I'm not so sure if that's great is because starch isn't on the package. And I think the evidence is pretty clear that there's not much difference between the effects of starch, which is 100% glucose versus added sugar. And so, you know, if you take a typical kind of cornflake cereal, it might not have any added sugar, but it's 100% starch and starch is 100% glucose. So it's glucose in a box with added vitamins. And so that's not a healthy cereal, but you wouldn't know just by looking at added sugar. So so I think added sugar is useful, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And so what has been studied in, in research to work better is to look at the total carbohydrate on the package, which is you know one of the top lines, and the total fiber in the package per serving, and to look for foods that have at least one gram of fiber for every 10 grams of carbohydrate. So a ratio of 10 to one or less. And so if it has 25 grams of carb, it should have two and a half grams of fiber or more. If it has 30 grams of carb, it should have three grams of fiber or more and so on. And so that 10 to 1 ratio works pretty well because what it does is it implicitly balances the overall starch and sugar versus the overall bran and whole grain in the food. And so it has the and seeds and other things that give fiber. So it's a balance of healthy components like whole grains, brands, and seed versus both starch and sugar. And it actually works pretty darn well. And so if you go and you look at breads and cereals and crackers and energy bars and kind of these other carb-rich foods, you can find that there are foods that have carb to fiber ratios of four to one, five to one, six to one, you know, those are pretty good choices. There's ones that are around 10 to one, which is sort of the border where I wouldn't you know, go beyond 10 to one. And then there's ones that are 20 to one, 30 to one, 40 to one, or of course, infinity, if it has no fiber at all. Right. <laughs> and so it's a rule of thumb. It's not perfect, but it actually works pretty well. And we've published that if you look at a whole bunch of different nutritional characteristics of foods, this simple ratio works well. Yeah, that's great. That's easy to do. It's all on the package of anything you're you're buying. You've also written about full fat dairy actually being associated with lower obesity and diabetes risk. You have to explain that one because that that definitely is counterintuitive. 
Well, so, you know, fat, even not causing you to be fat is also still for many people counterintuitive. And so it's worth just talking about that briefly. So the original reason fat was thought to cause people to become obese was fat has more calories per gram than protein or carbohydrate. And also, unfortunately, it's the same word, right? The fat in food. It's the same word. That's 90% (laughs) of the explanation right there. Right. Right. The fat in food. Well, if you eat that, it'll be cause you fat. But That's not actually what most of the fat in your body is from. I mean, most of the fat in your body is from eating too many calories that get converted to fat and then get sent for storage. And so think back to your high school biology, right? If you have a soda or have some bread, you get the sugar rush into your bloodstream. Some of it gets used by the muscles. That's that's a small amount. Some of it goes to your glycogen stores. That's a small amount. The rest of it gets converted to fat and goes to storage and fat. And so in fact, kids in the United States, there's an epidemic of fatty liver in kids because of soda and sugar consumption. So it's soda, it's starch and sugar that's causing fat to be made more than dietary fat. But in any case, there's been many trials now showing that higher fat diets cause less obesity. And so that's why, as I mentioned, the 2015 dietary guidelines quietly dropped the limit in the guidelines on total fat. They said there's really no evidence that a higher fat or lower fat diet makes a difference. It's more about food you eat, the kind of food you eat than the fat content. So they dropped that, which was a big advance. They Mm -hmm. didn't drop it for dairy. They still said you should have low fat or non-fat dairy, which was interesting because they did drop the focus on total fat. The reason for the continued focus on low fat dairy in guidelines is because there's some saturated fat in dairy and there's also more calories. And so with obesity, there's been a big push to focus on calories. And I think actually the calorie issue is what most Americans think about, right? The reason they choose low fat dairy is fewer calories. But in all the research that we've done and research that others have done and published, there's really no evidence that whole fat dairy is worse for you than low fat dairy. And there's even some evidence that whole fat dairy could be better. I say could be. I'm not not (laughs) conclusive. This is where, again, we need a moonshot of research to figure this out. After 25 years in this field, I should just be able to answer your question, Sid, right? But I can't. I can't answer it definitively. But I think there is really interesting evidence that whole fat dairy foods, on average, people who eat whole fat dairy foods have lower risk of diabetes. For sure, that's seen very consistently. And maybe even in some cases, lower risk of weight gain. And we've kind of reviewed the possible mechanisms, and it could either be the type of dairy. And so that's probably the single most important thing is that all dairy is not the same. Milk and cheese and yogurt and butter are four different foods. They're not the same. And so milk seems to be kind of neutral and butter seems to be actually kind of neutral, not either really good or really bad for you on average. But yogurt in particular seems to be healthy, um, probably because of the active probiotics. And cheese, interestingly, which has been sort of demonized for being a fatty food, cheese also seems to be potentially healthy. And I think it's because it's fermented. Cheese is the most common fermented food that we eat. And there's really interesting evidence about fermentation, the bacteria, their effects on the food, creating new vitamins and new nutrients, things like menoquinones, which could help with diabetes. So there's really interesting evidence that first, it may not be fat content that matters, but the type of dairy. And so what I would recommend to people is try to have yogurt, serving a yogurt and serving of cheese every day. And don't worry about the fat content, because until we have more science, we don't really know whether low fat or whole fat is better for you. And I'll just end because, you know, I know you're really interested in the science, Sid, but just a week ago, there was a really interesting paper published in Science Reports, which for the first time took some unique fatty acids that are only in really only in dairy fat, 
these odd chain, they're called odd chain saturated fats. They have an odd number of carbons, 15 or 17 carbons in the fatty acid chain. Most saturated fats are even chains, like 16 carbons. And these 15 and 17 carbon odd chain saturated fats, they actually studied them in animal experiments and in bench science. And they were incredibly bioactive molecules that bound to receptors and improved insulin function, reduced inflammation, had all of these effects in both animals, including dolphins. They even did study in dolphins and showed that dolphins that were obese and metabolically unhealthy got better when they fed them these odd chain saturated fats. So it's only the first real study of looking at these rare odd chain saturated fats that are in dairy, but showing that they're not just calories. So I think the fundamental message is that foods can't be judged based on their calories. Every food is a complex package of physiologic information that comes into our body and interacts with our body in complex ways. These simple solutions and labels really have brought us into a crazy place where all you look at is calorie. We talk about low-cal diets, even low-carb diets. But I, I like where we're going in our conversation. I feel like we're in a bit of a role because now cheese is good, and I love cheese, and I get the fermented part. I have a lot of friends that don't have any dairy. They say dairy is not good. And they're not lactose intolerant as far as I know, but I, I like it in cheese. I like it in butter. And now I'm going to ask you about one of my absolute favorite foods, coffee. <laughs> and that's actually one I think has been studied a lot because you're always seeing an article about coffee. Well, always. People that are attuned to look for something find these things. And that's kind of me when it comes to coffee. What is the science on coffee? And what do we know so far about what's good and what's not perhaps so good? Well, so if I'll step back a second, you know, we haven't really talked about what's good for you yet very much. So maybe I could step back and give my kind of big picture overview of what a healthy diet is. And I think for me, there's, you know, a few take home messages. One is that you don't need to change everything, right? Small incremental changes make a difference. That's really important. And they make a difference pretty quickly, actually, within five to six weeks. And so we're not talking a year or two years to improve your metabolic health with a healthier diet. Small changes over even a few weeks can make you healthier. The second take-home message is it's not about your weight, right? A lot of people conflate healthy diet with healthy weight. They're not the same thing. Of course, they're related. There's a lot of interrelationship, but whatever your weight, Wherever you are in your kind of weight spectrum, if you eat a healthier diet and your weight doesn't change, you get healthier. The same is true for physical activity, of course, and people actually have started to realize that if you're active, whatever your weight, you're healthier. The same is true for a healthy diet. And then third, in thinking about what to eat, it's not eat everything in moderation. Eat everything in moderation is a industry loves that message, right? Eat everything. Eat donuts in moderation. Eat soda in moderation. No. There's foods that are good for you. There's protective foods. Eat lots of those. There's foods that are kind of neutral. Use those to fill out your plate because they're kind of neutral in background and, that, and that's okay once in a while. And there's foods that are bad. Those are the ones to eat minimally and to minimize and eat once in a while and to consider a treat. And so at the top of the list, the protective foods where I think we have the strongest evidence are foods like fruits, seeds, nuts, beans, minimally processed whole grains, yogurt, fish, and healthy plant oils, oils like extra virgin olive oil and lots of other healthy plant oils. That's the top of the list, lots of benefits. In kind of the middle area, kind of neutral-ish foods, chicken, milk, eggs, I'd put their butter, I'd put their starting to be a little bit unhealthy, unprocessed red meats, fresh red meats like hamburger or steak, a little bit unhealthy for risk of diabetes if you eat more than, you know, let's say a serving or two per week, but once a week or so is probably okay. And then the worst foods is all the starch and sugary rich foods that are hyper-processed and are loaded with sodium and potentially additives. And so that's kind of a paradigm of what to eat. Now, I didn't mention coffee, 
But the reason I gave you that list is what the protective foods mostly have in common is that they're rich in flavanols and phytochemicals, these trace compounds that are in plants that really are in the seeds of the plants. Mm -hmm. And so fruits, seeds, beans, whole grains, most vegetables are actually fruits, things like pumpkins and squash and avocados and zucchini and tomatoes and cucumbers are all actually fruits. They have seeds. Anything with a seed is a fruit. And so these phytochemicals are really rich in foods that give rise to new plant life. When you plant a seed in the ground or a bean in the ground or a whole grain in the ground, these phytochemicals are what nourishes that new plant life to live and grow in, in harsh conditions. I'm pretty convinced that that's a big part of why these foods are good for our health because our bodies, as we age, need these trace phytochemicals and flavanols and other things. Now, why that's relevant for coffee is coffee is actually a bean extract. Coffee is an extract of a food that gives rise to life. And it's really an extract that has phenolics and flavanols and some of these other trace compounds in it. And so from a theoretical perspective, there's good reason to think that coffee would improve health. There have been many observational studies of coffee, all suggesting that people who have more coffee have lower risk of diabetes and heart disease and even death. There have been surprisingly few randomized controlled trials of coffee to see, well, if you actually gave coffee to people in a controlled trial, what does it do? Most of those trials have been relatively short term and looked at you know, what we call a surrogate outcome, like let's just look at your blood pressure, look at cholesterol. There's been no trial to look at actual events, right? Like getting diabetes. Those trials have not been overwhelmingly conclusive to me that coffee is beneficial, but there's been no harm. But there's been some hints of benefits in those trials. And so I think if you put together the relatively limited trials that have been done, the many, many observational studies that have been done, and the theoretical benefits of the flavanols, because again, coffee is a bean extract, I think it's likely that coffee is probably good for us, but uh, it's certainly not bad for us. Now, that doesn't mean a frappuccino that's like... 60% milk and 30% sugar and 10% coffee, that's not coffee, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actual espresso coffee with a little bit of sugar is okay. Half packet of sugar or something is fine. But there is probably evidence that it's good for you. So again, it's not convincing. I wish I could say, and the dietary guidelines also concluded mm. this when they looked at this in 2015, that we wish there was more science. And shouldn't we know one of the most common consumed drinks in our country? Shouldn't we really know what it's doing to health? But I think it's likely. And that brings me to cocoa, right? Cocoa is yes. also a bean extract. And so dark chocolate, 70% cocoa, especially if you put nuts in it, right? You're combining a bean extract and nuts, like that's a health food. It's actually a health food. <laughs> well, that's also encouraging. But it is interesting because I'm asking about individual types of food or categories. But in fact, the body doesn't uh, have a label for these things. The stuff comes in. We have what we eat with our breakfast with a cup of coffee. And it's all going through our system more or less at the same time. I mean, some things take longer to process, of course. But it's the combination of the different things we eat that strikes me as a much more complicated question. Maybe the answer is you kind of analyze it into the fundamental categories that are the good and the bad ones, the sugars and the salts that are bad, and then other ones as well. But is there much research on this question of the pattern of food and the interaction of different types of food? Because that's how we actually consume things. We don't live in a lab where we try one type of food and, and that's it. No, that's a really, I mean, all of your questions are excellent, Sid, but that's a really insightful question. And that's where we're just scratching the surface. We know the big picture of what I described. These are categories of foods that are probably big yeah. picture good for you. These are foods that are mostly neutral. These are foods that are bad. 
how they interact together, we're just scratching the surface. But everything that we've studied so far that has been seen so far suggests, yes, indeed, foods do interact together. And starch and sugar and the glycemic response to starch and sugar is one example of that. There was a very nice interventional study where they took the same people and they gave them meals two different ways. They gave them bread. Bread is 100% glucose. When you see a piece of bread, think of it like Skittles, right? It's 100% glucose. And so it's okay to have once in a while, but it's a treat, right? It's not something that you should be eating as your main food. They gave somebody bread first, and then 10 minutes later, we gave them chicken. And they brought the same people back and reversed it. You know, on another day, they gave them chicken first and 10 minutes later, they gave them bread. That difference, that small difference of just the order of the food changed the glycemic response of the bread. And when, when the chicken was eaten first, the bread was digested more slowly. When the bread was eaten first, the bread was digested much more quickly and you got a higher spike in your blood sugar. So restaurants putting out the bread first, right, is the worst thing they could be putting out first, right? You know, you should eat your bread with the meal dip it in olive oil, right? Eat it with other foods. And so I think starch in particular, if it's mixed and eaten with other foods, definitely seems to have less of an adverse response. But we're just scratching the surface of this. And so I think understanding these interactions is crucial. And I've mentioned it a couple of times, but here with the complexity, it's worth, again, expanding on the gut microbiome, right? We have more, at least the same, if not more bacterial cells in and on our body than human cells. And so by the number of cells, we're more bacteria than humans. And we're just starting to understand how important our gut bacteria in particular are for health, for immune function, for obesity, for diabetes, for likely autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, for many other potential conditions. Even autism has been linked to the gut microbiome, although again, not conclusively. And by far, the single biggest and quickest modulator of our gut bacteria is what you eat. Within days, you can change your gut bacteria based on what you eat. And so I actually think that when we talk about what's good for us and what's bad for us, in many ways, we're probably actually talking about what's good or bad for our gut bacteria. And when we have healthy gut bacteria that are happy and well-fed, they treat us well. And when we don't, and they're starving and annoyed and putting out inflammatory markers, that they treat us poorly. And again, the examples of the foods I told you about, all of those foods are ones that have intact food structure. And so they're not fully digested in our stomach and in our small intestine. If you eat a piece of fruit or if you eat a nut, especially, some of that gets down into your large intestine and the bacteria then get to have that meal. If you have a soda or white bread or a bagel, that whole thing's digested and gone long before it gets to the large intestine. You're basically starving the bacteria. So I think that the interesting complexity really extends to thinking about mm. how we're keeping our passengers in our body happy. Right, right. And you made me also think about, so the time flow of when we're eating makes me think about intermittent fasting that has gotten a lot of publicity in the last while. Is there a good science behind it? What do you think about this idea, intermittent fasting? Yeah, well, it's certainly been shown that people who intermittently fast, and that's usually defined as a period of like at least eight to 12 hours of fasting. And so even if you just, let's say, stop eating after 7 p.m. and then don't eat again until 7 a.m., that's defined as intermittent fasting, right? So that means 12 hours every day from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., you're, you're not eating. Some people do other things like they'll skip lunch, right? They'll eat at breakfast, eat at dinner, and not eat in between. So there's not been that many studies of intermittent fasting in humans. The studies that have been done show that accounting for the calories, if you give people, if you recommend to people here, eat this many calories intermittently fasting or eat this many calories in three or four meals per day, on average, there's no difference. But for some people, it works really well. And some people's 
I don't know if it's their physical body or their lifestyle or their psychological responses. Some people do really well with it and some people don't. And so the way I look at what we know about intermittent fasting so far is that I can't tell you that it in and of itself is better or worse than not intermittent fasting, but I can tell you that it does really work for some people. And so if you're eating healthy food and intermittent fasting works for you, then that's great. There's no downside to it. Right. And when you said the 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., my first reaction is, well, that's kind of like a no-brainer. You stop eating, you have dinner. and But for a lot of people, it's far from that because of snacking and, and all kinds of other things. So even the 12 hours. Or just work, just getting home and working and trying to make dinner. And with COVID, of course, things are opening up, but we've had a national experiment of 330 million Americans mm -hmm. at home, eating at home. And this was an incredible opportunity, a missed opportunity, I think, for our governors and our public health officials and our federal officials to talk about healthy eating and healthy cooking. From all the sales data, there's been kind of two bumps of consumer behavior. One is consumers who are definitely rapidly shifting and trying to buy healthier products in the grocery store. There's also been a huge bump of people sort of buying comfort foods, indulgent foods, unhealthy foods, packaged foods during this crisis over this year. Mm -hmm. And so this was a big missed opportunity. If you had to pick one food to eat every day for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I think, I think eating a range of healthy, minimally processed foods is so delicious. It's expensive. It's more expensive than buying like the cheapest thing in the grocery store. And, and we have to change that from a policy perspective because there's tens of millions of Americans that can't afford a healthy diet. And that's because you know we don't have the right policies in place to make those foods less expensive. But if we could have everybody to be able to eat healthy foods, I mean, there's so many delicious, delicious foods and meals and dishes. And so I couldn't even start to help to limit those. I mean, again, a, a mix of fruits and fish and nuts and nice asparagus with olive oil on top of yeah. it. I mean, there's just this incredible salmon, dark chocolate with nuts afterward. I mean, strawberries dipped in whipped, whipped cream, unsweetened whipped cream. If you haven't had unsweetened whipped cream, while not the sweetened stuff, unsweetened whipped cream is delicious. Like it's a delicious thing to add to fruit or, or nuts. There's just so much really good, healthy food. The challenge isn't that we don't have good, healthy food. It's that we don't have systems that make it less expensive and accessible and affordable and the default. And that's really a lot of our work and research now is kind of on these policy right. approaches, but we'll leave that for another conversation. Right. Right. Well, we're just about out of time. And I wanted to ask you two uh, last questions. One that you've alluded to already in a couple of places, which is when you start to eat differently, the body processes those changes and you start to see effects quickly. And so the question is, if you have a kid or kids, or even if you're, you know, you're an adult or a young adult, and you, you know you haven't eaten that well for a while, you've had not the best diet, and you're ready to change, what's the encouraging word for that population? There's a lot of people that could fall into that population where, where they want to know it's not too late. I can turn it around and, and it won't be that hard to do. I mean, it takes some effort, but it's not impossible. Well, first, interventional studies and long-term observational studies have been done at every age group and all showed benefit. So it's never too early or too late if you change your diet. And at the same time, it also, on the negative side, if you worsen your diet, it's going to impact you at any age. You can't say, oh, I'm, I'm 65, I'll just do what I want now, I'll be okay, right? At any age, diet is important. Secondly, as I mentioned, small changes make a difference. And so what I recommend is sort of look at the list, and there are some papers I and others have written on this. So try to get a list, put it up on your refrigerator, 
here's healthy foods I want to eat more of, here's unhealthy foods that I want to minimize. And just look at that list and pick one thing on the healthy list and one thing on the unhealthy list and say, okay, I'm going to have a little bit less of that and a little bit more of the other one. And just add that into your diet, get it to where you're being consistent. And after several weeks, right, several weeks or a couple of months, if you're doing that, then pick another one, right? Mm-hmm. Go, go for incremental changes. Some people do really well, like changing everything overnight, but most people don't. And so I think pick small incremental things, something you're going to cut out, something you're going to add. Make sure you find options that taste good. Actually, it's like exercise. Once you start exercising, most people who exercise regularly, if they don't exercise for a few Mm -hmm. days, they feel terrible, right? It's the same with healthy eating. Once you start eating healthy food, you can't go back. You can't. You try. You try to go back to that junk food you used to eat and you eat it and you feel terrible. So you will feel better. And so I think that incremental changes, pick a couple things, build on them over time, and don't focus on weight. Weight is not the outcome. A healthy diet is the outcome. By the way, I know that seafood and omega-3s are high on your list of good things. What if you don't like seafood or it doesn't agree with you? Are there other ways to get omega-3s? Well, there's plant-based omega-3s that are in nuts, you know, walnuts, oils like soybean oil and canola oil. The plant-based omega-3s don't have the same evidence as the seafood omega-3s. If you eat the plant-based omega-3s, they are converted a little bit in your body to the longer chain omega-3s that are found in seafood, but not very much. And so, you know, what I recommend to people is if, you know, you don't eat any seafood at all, then, you know, it's very reasonable to take an over-the-counter fish oil supplement. It's not going to hurt and it might help. Okay. Last question for you. And it's a question I'd like to ask all of my guests in the SIDCAST because it's about advice, but it's advice for yourself or to yourself. If you could kind of magically go back in time to when you were 21 years old and you could kind of just cozy up next to yourself at the age of 21 and lean over and say, you know, there's really something you need to know about life. There's something you want to do, something you want to think about. If there's one thing you need to know, this is it. What would you put in that category? Advice to yourself as a young man. Well, I think it's not nothing to do with food. Is that okay? That's it's seldom about whatever their, their expertise is. <laughs> yeah. It's about life. <laughs> about life. I think the advice I would have given to myself is to learn and understand the principle of active listening, that there's a skill to repeating back and showing that you've heard what people say to you. And um, it's something that I've been working on as a dean and as a leader for several years, and I'm getting a little bit better at But, you know, it's interesting that there's real benefit to listening and not just listening, but then active listening, which means working on showing people that you've heard them in an active way. And I feel that a lot of the miscommunication I've seen in my life, whether it's professional or personal or even political, is from lack of active listening. And so I think humans really respond well to being heard, to really being heard. And so Again, this is something that I've started to learn about and work on over my career. I wish I knew more about it when I was 21. Yeah, that's great. And that's a theme I have heard in general from a few other people when I've asked them that question, the power of listening. And you you use the word active listening, which means you, you have to work at it and you want to reinforce and I think kind of reflect back to the person you're talking to that you're getting what she's saying or you're asking or probing to try to get a better sense of it. People respect that. People want to be heard. I found, by the way, this is a bit of an aside, but we're both educators, that the number one way to be an effective teacher, and there are lots and lots of ways to do this. But the number one thing that I think is embedded in every method there is, is to respect your students and to make sure they know that you actually do respect them. It's very simple. And you would think everyone would, but 
the fact of the matter is not everybody would, and this is true in, for teaching, yeah. but it's also true for lots of things in life. People just want to know that you know that they're a human being and that they're a person and they have a point of view about things. You don't have to agree with them and the facts, but they want to know that they exist and that you know they exist and that they're important. That might've been my answer. I definitely didn't know that when I was 21 years old. That's for sure. Well, that's a really valuable comment and that respect and active listening go hand in hand, right? And you have to have the fundamental yeah, respect yeah, yeah. for them. And, and for any listeners who are saying, oh, what, what does that mean? What does active listening mean? Go back and listen to the podcast again and you'll see that Sid is a superstar active listening in every question and response. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's a good way to end, I think. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Darius Mozafarian. It's a pleasure to talk to you and you've really uh, given us lots and lots of insights sites. And I think a lot of people are going to be turned on to kind of following and hopefully seeing that moonshot in action over the next, hopefully not 50 years, as you said, but the next few years. Thank you so much for being on the SIDCAST. Of course. And for everyone listening, you know, tell your leaders in your institutions and your elected leaders that you care about food. We can fix this. Thanks so much, Sid. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.